are all trying to survive one very modern world. I don't know. My dad screwed me up pretty good. What do you think two dads would do to a kid? Look around. Your definition of traditional might need a refresh. Everyone has been dishing on the Mark Anthony J-Lo divorce. Katy Perry and Russell Brand are getting a divorce. I am deeply aware of the disappointment and hurt that my infidelity has caused. Deion Sanders filed papers. After years of cheating rumors, Kobe Bryant's wife has finally filed for divorce. These things happen. Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise's divorce continues to get nastier. Heidi Klum and Seal voted most shocking divorce. Now I how, have to clarify. No, my first ex-husband. How long so. were you with him for? Which There is sometimes this moment after everything has gone wrong, after everything has fallen apart, that you're able to look back and see in hindsight what led up to it. As you were leading up to it, you don't see it, but as you look back, it becomes more clear. Um, a few summers ago, I was in Las Vegas, and it was early Sunday morning, and I was on my way to go preach at a church in Vegas, and I got pulled over for drunk driving, okay? I'm going to put that in quotes because I wasn't drunk and driving, uh, but there were some things leading up to that moment that made sense when I looked back on it. So, for example, the day before I'd landed in Vegas and I was supposed to drive a Dodge Stratus, like that was the car they had rented for me. But I thought, hey, I'm going to try to, you know, charm my way up into something a little more fun, uh, a convertible, right? And so it turns out it's not very difficult to charm your way into a convertible when it's 114 degrees outside because they're all available. And so they put me in this obnoxious canary yellow Mustang convertible. My apologies if that's what you drive. And so I'm, I'm driving on an early Sunday morning with the top down on my way to this church in this canary yellow Mustang convertible. Well, I was also supposed to stay at a hotel close to the church, but if you're in Vegas, you kind of fun to stay close to the strip, and so I stayed at a Holiday Inn right behind a casino. And so it looks like early on Sunday morning, I am pulling out of a casino right after being out all night. I'm pulling out of a casino in my canary yellow Mustang convertible. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, there was this little factor. The day before, I'd been in a gas station, and I got some gum while I was in the gas station. They had this, uh, they had this container set up where they had their drinks for sale, and they had in this container IBC root beer. You familiar with IBC root beer? It comes in like the a beer bottle looking bottle, right? And my wife's not a big fan of IBC root beer because it's a little more expensive because of the bottle it's in, but she wasn't with me. And so I got some IBC root beer. <laughs> and so I buy that the night before. There's still a little leftover and it's in the cup holder of the Canary Yellow Mustang convertible. And so as I'm pulling out of the casino early on Sunday morning, I pick up my IBC root beer and take a swig of my day old root beer. About this time, I see the lights, the officer pulls me over and informs me that he is uh, pulling me over for driving under the influence. At this moment, the whole scene thing, I'm kind of putting the pieces together, and it seemed funny to me. I don't know if any of you have this problem, but I laugh at inappropriate times. It's what I do. Like, the more inappropriate, the harder I laugh. And so, I'm just, I'm on my way to go preach at this church, and all these things are coming, and, and it just strikes me as hilarious. And so, I, I start laughing, as, and, and the officer says, this is not a laughing matter. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm on my way to go preach at a church. And he says to me, that's exactly what a drunk person would say. 
And so he, he goes back to his car and leaves me there. And uh, all of a sudden, the different factors, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, right? And you see all these things that led up to this moment that you didn't think anything of at the time, but then when everything starts to go wrong, it becomes clear. And he, he, I ran a few tests, passed just fine, and so I got off. It was, it was okay. But do you ever have kind of a moment like that? You look back, and in hindsight, things begin to make some sense. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes uh, on the news we'll see a report of a, a plane crash. Whenever you see those images, they tend to be pretty... Uh, you know, horrific images, and, and uh, typically the plane is in all kinds of pieces, and oftentimes there are no survivors, and uh, there's been a fires, everything has been burnt, and, and, and when it happens, when a plane crashes, everyone wants to know, well, what went wrong, right? Because we fly often enough that we want to know, well, what happened? How did this happen? And so the rescuers are often searching for what's called the the black box, yeah, which is actually orange, I learned last hour. And so they're looking for the black box, and the black box records all the data leading up to the moment of the, the crash. It tells you, here's what happened, here are the conversations that took place in the cockpit, and hopefully you recover the black box and you learn about what happened, and you're able to prevent it the next time, right? And so that's really what we want to do here. As we talk about marriage and family, we want to study some from the Old Testament, and we want to recover some black boxes from families that fell apart. And we want to ask ourselves, okay, what went wrong? What happened in this family? And what can we learn from it when it comes to our own family? It's surprising, really, if you study Scripture, some of the stories that the Bible tells us. You would think, you would think the Bible would leave out some, some of these moments in the, in the families and marriages those in Scripture, but the Bible wants us to learn. And so um, we, we study and we learn from, from their mistakes. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is just, uh, I want us to push play on the black box from David's family. Now David is known as a man after God's own heart, but if you looked at the life of his family, it wouldn't really be a happily ever after story. It would fit more you know, not the genre of a fairy tale, but more the genre of a soap opera. And, you know, everything just seemed to fall apart for him. And so I want us to kind of recover the black box from David's family. But before we do that, I just, I, I just wanted to ask you what, if there was a black box in your home, I mean, what is it recording? I mean, if I push play on that, what would I hear? I mean, would I hear laughter and joy? In your home, or what I hear, you know, conflict and angry words and lots of yelling. I know some of you grew up in a broken home and was full of conflict, and you were determined things were going to be different in your home. And you said, oh, I'm not going to yell like my mom, or I'm not going to walk out when things get tough like my dad. And, and you made some promises. If I push play on that black box, would I hear words of commitment that are spoken when times are especially difficult, or instead would I hear broken promises? I mean, we say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. But then life happens, and, and she struggles with depression. Or there's an unattract, unexpected attraction for him at the office to a co-worker. And she doesn't seem as attentive, and it doesn't seem that he tries as hard. And the and words of commitment at some point stop being spoken. If I push play on the black box, would, would I hear the prayers of a husband and wife being spoken as they fall asleep next to each other? Would I hear a conversation of two people who are in love? Or if I push play, would it sound more like two business partners dealing transactionally with one another? Well, do you have the kids tomorrow? Okay, well, I'm going to go buy Target. You need to pay the electric bill that was supposed to have been paid last week. And it ends up just sounding very transactional. If you listen to it, it doesn't sound like a couple. It sounds like co-workers. And so if you look at David's 
black box, if you recovered that from his house, I, I think you, I, I think he would have been surprised at how everything fell apart, how everything crashed. Really, the, the beginning of the end, the, where everything began to fall apart for him was um, one day he's on this rooftop. The Bible says that he should have been off at war springtime, but he stays back at home, and he's on this rooftop, and he looks down below. I think he knew what he would see on that day as he sees Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. There was a set time of day where women would bathe on their rooftop. There are a few reasons for this. One is that they were uh, required to, to bathe ceremonially with water that had been naturally gathered. So they would bathe on the rooftop with water that had been naturally gathered, besides the fact that water on the rooftop tended to be warm. Everybody likes a hot shower, right? It's hard to get it in my house. Um, I've got, you know, there's my wife and then three girls. I've got two teenage daughters and one daughter who's almost a teenager. And so four girls, I don't get a lot of hot showers. And uh, I've told my son, you know, son, the C stands for cold and the H stands for hope you like it cold because those are your, <laughs> those are your two options in our house. And so they would go to the rooftop where they could, they could get this water that had been naturally gathered as a warmer, and it was a set time of day where this would take place. So David goes up to the rooftop. I think he knew what he would see when he was up there. He sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, is bathing. He says to his servant, who is this? The servant says, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David says, go get her for me. She comes to the palace. Before long, the affair begins. She becomes pregnant. He wants to cover this up, and so he calls for Uriah, who's fighting on the front lines of battle to come back. He's hoping that he'll sleep with his wife and no one will be the wiser, but Uriah doesn't do that. In fact, he sleeps on his front porch. He refuses to sleep in his own bed because that's not fair to the fighting men, the brothers in arms who are shedding blood on the battlefield. And, and then so David sends Uriah back to battle with basically the sealed envelope of his own death sentence. And they put Uriah on the front lines where it's fierce and then they withdraw from him. And he is killed. And so it's just this horrific story. The plane just crashes. And you fast forward a little bit, and his family his life gets even worse. You read about his, his son, Amnon, who rapes his half-sister, David's daughter, Tamar. And then there's Absalom, David's son, Tamar's full brother, who plans for two years his revenge and kills Amnon. And it precipitates a civil war between Absalom and David, and Absalom ends up dead, and the nation is divided, and it's just, it's just this wreck. And you read through this, and you think, well, what happened? How did, how did it happen like this? What went wrong? It just all fell apart. And so that's what I want to say, is I want us to step back and just see, okay, where, where did things start to go wrong for him? There's a literary device known as reverse chronology, where you watch, like in a movie, you watch the, the end of the movie at the beginning, and you're watching it, and you're like, what happened? How did this happen? And then they show you the end, and then go back and show you everything that led up to it. And that's basically what I want us to do here with David's life. We see the tragic ending, where everything kind of falls apart, and the fair, the murder, the cover-up, the rape, the, the civil war. I mean, it's a disaster, but let's, let's do a little reverse chronology and ask ourselves, well, what led up to this moment? And, and here's why this is intriguing to me, is as a minister— this is oftentimes the position I'm put in. I'm trying to figure out, okay, what, what, what happened here? How did it get to this? Because I'll talk to, you know, a family when it's at the point of crisis, where the marriage has fallen apart, the affair has been discovered, the child has, you know, rebelled, and they're, they're sitting across, and they're saying, well, what happened? They want me to tell them what happened. I don't know what happened. What, you tell me what happened. They don't know what happened. 
And so you look back and you think, okay, well, what, what are the things that led up to this moment? And, and, um, and I think we can do that. As we study David's life, we can learn some things. And so there's this moment recorded for us in Scripture that is seemingly insignificant in the life of David, but I think, it is, I think it's recorded for a reason. It, it, tells us, it tells us what I think led up to this moment for David. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Samuel 6. 2, 2 Samuel 6, and at this point, David is a young husband, and he is married to the wife of his youth. He's married to Saul's daughter, Michael. You know, their marriage had kind of this romantic beginning. When he was 18 years old, David's dad sends him uh, to the battlefield to take food, 18-ish years old. His dad sends him to the battlefield to take food to his brothers, right? So David gets to the battlefield. No one's fighting. Instead, there's this giant Goliath who is threatening the people of God and insulting God himself. And David hears all of this taking place. And it's like, why doesn't somebody do something? And he finds out that, that uh, whoever would fight the giant Goliath, that Saul, the king of Israel, had said, look, if you fight the giant Goliath, there's no more taxes You'll never have to pay taxes again, and I will give you the hand of my daughter, Michael, in marriage. And so David is intrigued by this. And, and so, you know, Michael's kind of an unusual name uh, for a girl. And so he, here's what he asks King Saul. This is Second Samuel. We have this slide. First Samuel, 17, verse 7. The freedom from taxes, David says, for all of my days is quite pleasing. But may I see a picture of Michael? That's what he asks. I'm just kidding. That's not in the Bible. Like, Saul wasn't carrying a picture of Michael in his wallet. No, but, but you have to wonder. You know, he's like stepping out on the battlefield. I'm like, I wonder what she looks like. And so he, he defeats Goliath, this giant. And uh, one of the things that happens is he's given um, Princess Michael to be his wife. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, things are going pretty well for David and for Michael. Things at the office are great. This is the day that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, is returned to Israel. A great day, a great day of celebration as the Ark is in its rightful place. And Michael is watching out the window. And as the, as the Ark is returned, she sees David take off his robe and, and he starts dancing in front of all the people. And she's embarrassed by this. Uh, wives, well, do your husbands ever do this? They, not disrobe and dance in public. Maybe they do. But do they ever embarrass you in public? Does this happen? This is your chance to get them back. Raise your hand if your husbands embarrass you in public. You know they do. Just, just admit to it, right? Thank you. It's just like, yes, it's well done. Feels good, doesn't it? Like, here's what you need to know is that we enjoy this. Like, we enjoy embarrassing you in public. We get bored, and we need something to do, and oftentimes you're very easy targets. And so I'll embarrass my wife in public quite intentionally for my own entertainment. And so, you know, we'll go out to dinner on a date, and she'll never see it coming, and I'll order in an Australian accent. And she's just looking at me, you know, it's like, I cannot believe you're doing this. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this. And then, of course, I have to keep it up because it's even more embarrassing if the waitress comes back and I've switched back to my American accent. So the whole dinner, whenever the waitress is around, I switch on to my Australian accent and she's embarrassed and I'm entertained and it all works out in the end. And I don't think that was David's intent, right? I don't think he was thinking to himself, you know, <laughs> my wife's watching. She is going to be humiliated if I strip off my robe and start dancing. But, but that's what happens. He, he starts dancing. He's celebrating before the Lord. She's embarrassed. 
And she thinks his behavior makes her look bad. Look at verse 20. It says, when David returned, and this really is the Bible, I should say. So when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, okay, pick up on the sarcasm here, that she says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David comes home. Michael immediately kind of lays into him. He gets defensive. David says to Michael, it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone in his house to be appointed ruler over the Lord before, uh, over the Lord's people Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. So here's what David does. He goes on the defensive. And he attacks her. Says, look, yeah, it was before the Lord who... Uh, chose me rather than any of my in-laws to be the king. And he pulls the in-laws into the argument. It's a rookie mistake. And, and verse 23 concludes, and it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. It's the Bible's way of saying that their marriage was essentially over, that they, they, they no longer slept together. And we don't read about Michael in, script, in Scripture again. For all practical purpose, there's, this is the end. Now, I want you to compare that story to the different stories we read about David's family, and this one seems that uh, doesn't seem that significant. It seems rather tame and not all that dramatic. Yet it's interesting that on this great day of celebration, the ark of the Lord is returning, that the Bible seems to go out of its way to give us some pretty specific dialogue, some pretty detailed play-by-play of this moment between a husband and his young wife. And the argument between them seems insignificant. But I'm wondering if this is just, you know, symptomatic, right? That it, he's, there were many conversations like this, and here's one recorded for us. And I can't help but read it and think, well, what would have happened in history had these moments been dealt with differently by David and his wife? Does that make sense? Like, how would it have changed things if moments like this would have gone differently for David and the wife of his youth, Michael? I mean, what if Michael would have been encouraging to her husband? Or what if David had listened to his wife? What if there would not have been the criticism and the sarcasm and the personal attacks? What if Michael would have been more understanding? What if David wouldn't have been defensive? What if someone would have said, I'm sorry? What if someone would have said, I, let me think more about that. You may have a point. What, what if David would have fought for the wife of his youth with the same courage and the same conviction with which he fought the giant Goliath? Do you think the whole course of history might have changed? I think, I think so. See, we want to focus in on the moment it all just crashed and fell into a million pieces. But there's a lot that leads up to that moment. Seemingly insignificant moments in the day-to-day that leads up to it. I was, um, a few years ago, we were living in a neighborhood where the storm came through, big storm, and it blew over my neighbor's giant tree tree landed on his house. Everybody was okay, but it did some damage. The next day I went over, he had uh, some guys over there cleaning up this tree and chainsaws, and I went over to, to kind of see what was going on, and, and I, uh, I said to the guy who was cutting, I said, that must have been some storm to knock over this big tree. It's been quite a storm, and the guy said, oh, it wasn't the storm. And he took me around, and he showed me where the de- tree, this big tree that looks so strong, had been decaying from the inside out, he said, for years. Just got day in and day out, day in and day out for years. It's just decaying, decaying, decaying. And yeah, finally a storm comes and knocks it over. But it wasn't, don't blame the storm. It wasn't the storm. A lot led up to this. And so what we have a tendency to do is we, we just blame the storm. We see this one big moment, this one big incident, and think, well, it all fell apart. Well, uh, chances are there was a lot of 
just regular days of seemingly insignificant moments that created this cumulative effect, and here's what happened. And one of my friends pictures it this way. He says, he says, in marriage, you know, we always give our spouse basically a rock to carry. This is the weight. This is the burden we've asked them to carry. And, you know, maybe the weight you've asked your spouse to carry is kind of a, your, a negative spirit, or maybe it's your workaholism, or maybe it's your passivity, or maybe it's your lack of responsibility, or maybe it's a short fuse, and they, they think, well, no one's perfect, and they're, they're willing to carry this rock that you've given them. They're willing to carry this weight. They have the mental determination to say, okay, I love you. I'm going to carry this rock. For some of you, the rock you've been asked to carry is a little bit heavier. It's, it's an addiction, an addiction to some substance or to pornography, and, and it's a little heavier. But you, there's a mental willingness on your part to carry the rock, to carry this weight that your spouse has handed to you. But at some point, your mental determination to carry that weight is overcome by just the time of carrying it. Just the physical exhaustion eventually carries, eventually catches up. It's not that you weren't willing. It's not that you weren't determined. You were determined to carry the rock. And you did as long as you could. But then at some point, you drop the rock and it falls. And people look and the point the rock fell and say, well, what happened? The rock wasn't that heavy. I mean, couldn't you have carried that rock a little longer? What, what, what happened? And husbands and wives oftentimes say, they don't know what happened. They'll say, I don't know what happened. Everything seemed fine. Nothing really changed. And one day, she, she just left. Or one day, he, he just left me a note and didn't come home. And well, I don't know what happened. Well, at some point, their mental willingness and determination to carry the weight was overcome by just physical exhaustion. They were tired. And everyone wants to look at the day, the moment the rock dropped and fell into a lot of pieces. But there were a lot of days leading up to that one moment. And so what I want us to do here is I, I want us to focus in more here on just kind of the little things of the day-to-day -day moments as we look at 2 Samuel 6. Because look, you know, I know that there is a tendency for us to kind of have, oftentimes in marriage, you have a, what feels like a big challenge and a big problem, and you want a big solution to the big problem right? Like you want the one big thing that you can do to undo everything that's led to this moment. It doesn't usually work that way. It's like, you know, if, if you step on a scale and suddenly you realize I'm 30 pounds overweight and then you go to the gym, you can't just like go in for the ultimate workout and undo it all in one big workout day. Wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. And, and so you do the right thing for day, today and then you do the right thing tomorrow and eventually the cumulative effect of doing some of the little things the right way begins to change the course of direction. And I think that oftentimes that's how change happens. And so I want us to study this from 2 Samuel 6 and just look at some, some ways that may be seemingly insignificant that we will deal with one another as husband and wife even today that changes the course of things six, ten years from now. The Bible says in Ephesians that when we don't handle our conflict and our anger in a God-honoring, healthy way, that it gives the devil a, a foothold. It just gets a foothold. And it doesn't seem that significant at the time, but that's really all he needs. And so I want to give you some of these things. Now look, we have a tendency, again, we want to make things sometimes more difficult than they need to be. Like we ignore the, don't tell me the little things. I want the big thing. Right? Make things more difficult than it needs to be. I, a friend of mine said, hey, sometime when you're bored, get on Google Maps and look at what Google Maps says, how it says to get from Seattle, Washington to Beijing, China. I'm like, that sounds interesting. And so one day I'm bored, and I was like, okay, so I put this in Google Maps, Maps Seattle, Washington to Beijing, China. It's like uh, 8,911 miles. It's a long way. It's almost 9,000 miles. 
But then Google Maps says that it takes 36 days and nine hours to get there. 36 days. That's a long flight. And so I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, well, okay, well, what are their step-by-step -step directions? And the first four steps made sense. They're just basically how to get out of Washington. But then look at steps five through eight. Step five, slight right at Bridgeway North, 0.3 miles. Step six, turn right at Stoneway North, 0.4 miles. Step seven, slight left at North North Lake Way, 0.2 miles. Step eight, kayak across the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> 2,765 miles. And then they like, take you on the scenic route through the Hawaiian Islands, and then you get on your kayak again to go the rest of the way. Well, okay, right? I suppose that's one way to get there. But it doesn't have to be that hard. I mean, it seems like you're making it more difficult than it needs to be. And there, you could just get on a plane. And so, so what I wanted to do is I want us to look at some steps. But I don't want it just to sound like, oh, well, these are just the simple six, you know, six simple steps to maximizing your marriage. No, I don't want it to sound like that. But look, there are some little things that we can do today and then we can do tomorrow. And how we deal with conflict and challenges as they arise that I think ultimately make a significant difference. So from 2 Samuel 6, just a few encouragements. Number one, when there's conflict in a marriage that you identify the base issue. Like Michael, sometimes we just kind of go on the attack. We don't really take time to understand what the issue really is. And so you have to identify the rock. Um, and so maybe the issue is, you think the issue is that your, your husband... Um, you know, is always coming home late from the office. But maybe that's the issue, or maybe it's that you just never know what time he's coming home. You just, you just want to know. You don't mind it being late. You just want to know. And so you identify, okay, here's, here's what the issue really is. You, you take time to listen. The Bible tells us in James to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so you, so you listen. And guys, I, I think especially as husbands, we oftentimes need help with this. If David would have listened more intently to his wife, maybe he would have discovered that she just wanted to be included in the celebration process. Here she is, this great day of celebration, and he's down there, and she's up in the palace watching it take place. Or maybe he would have discovered that she's, you know, just a little more introverted than he is. God's wired her differently, and she gets a little embarrassed in those moments. Or maybe would have, she would have, he would have discovered that she's just feeling a little insecure as she makes a comment about David dancing around the slave girls. And maybe she just needed a little reassurance. But to stop and listen for a moment. Identify what the issue is. Dr. Howard Markman of um, Denver University is a leading expert in the area of, of uh, divorce prevention. And, and I like the way he says this. He says, you've got to understand that anger is a secondary emotion. It's not a primary feeling. And see, oftentimes conflict arises, there's emotion, there's anger, and we address things from the perspective of, you know, ang here's an angry spouse. But he says, look, uh, anger is always a secondary emotion. In other words, it's coming from something else. And he said, oftentimes it's coming from hurt. Now, if Michael would have answered the door and she would have had some tears in her eyes and she would have said, you know what, I was embarrassed and it, 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 it just hurt me to see you dancing around without your robe on in front of these slave girls, and he, David saw some, some tenderness and some tears, how do you think he would have responded? I bet he would have responded differently. He probably would have gone over, put his arms around her, and said, I, you know what, I'm sorry. I, but she gets angry, and that's oftentimes what happens. There's hurt, and it surfaces in anger. So what David needs to do is to look below the anger and say, what's really, what's really the problem here? A lot of times anger comes, he says, from frustration. 
where you feel like you've said the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and your husband or wife, likely husband, has not gotten it. He just doesn't get it. And so you get, you get angry because there's this frustration. Or he says sometimes anger comes from fear or insecurity. Whenever you're fearful or insecure, sometimes that will surface in anger. And so you try to identify, okay, where is this anger coming from? What really is, what really is the issue here? A second thing that we can learn from this story is to find a good time and place to deal with some of the conflict. David comes home from work. It's been a great day. He wants to come home and his wife to be impressed and to celebrate with him, but as he walks in the door, she lays into him. This was not the time. It wasn't the right place. The dinner table is not the time. It's not the right place. The bedroom is not the time. It's not the right place. So you say to your husband or you say to your wife, look, it's been a great day, right? And celebrate with you. Later on tonight, can we go for a walk and maybe just talk through a few things? And you, you find the right time and the right place to deal with it in a healthy way. Number three uh, encouragement is to stick to the issue. David kind of makes this classic conflict mistake. He goes on the defensive. He kind of plays the I'm more spiritual than you car. He said, well, God chose me for this position. He brings in the in-laws, chose me instead of your brother to be in this role. And lastly, you, you try to start with a positive. Say something positive before you say something negative. I just think this one little, one little change could make a huge difference in so many marriages. All right? I mean, Michael may not have liked David dancing around on his loin, in his loincloth, but maybe she could have started the conversation complimenting his sweet dance moves. I mean, there could have been some kind of positive, I don't, I don't know. But there's something, there's something she could have said. And, and so start with something positive and encouraging the Bible says in Proverbs, I wouldn't say this, but the Bible says in Proverbs that, a, that a, a nagging wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. It's just this constant dripping. And some husbands come home and they feel like they're being waterboarded, right? Like the moment they walk in the door. It's like a, and, and so you, you start with some encouragement, positivity. And certainly this is true for husbands as well, that there's not this picking apart or this constant criticism, but there's a, a daily building up through encouragement, as Hebrews talks about. And if, if David could have just dealt with some things differently, I mean, if he could have just reassured her and encouraged her, if she would have just felt listened to. I just, I just wonder how things would have changed in the ultimate story if on these little seemingly insignificant moments, things would have been handled differently. And so here's what I know. I know that today there will be some seemingly insignificant moments where you will have an opportunity to honor God and to honor your spouse in dealing with conflict or in your conversations with one another. And it may not seem that big of a deal. It may seem like today is a day where you can just say whatever you want to say and you can get mad and angry and, and you think, well, no harm is done. You know, we'll make things right tomorrow. But there's a cumulative effect to these things and it is building. It is building. And so you say, today I'm going to do some little things in a way that honors God. And here's the beautiful thing. I know that there are some of you who listen to this, and you're like, okay, yeah, don't disagree with it. Would have been helpful to hear some of these things maybe 10 years ago, but for now, you know, it's just, it's too late, too many pieces, things are too broken. But here's what God does. Listen, God, God can redeem anything. So what he does, you keep reading in the Bible, eventually you get to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, genealogy of Jesus. We're reading about who Jesus comes from, and Jesus comes from David and Bathsheba. And so out of this disaster of a decision and mistakes that were made, 
God ultimately brings the birth of his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Savior. My point is this. We'll talk about some little things here that have been helpful, but, but our hope is in Jesus Christ. He alone can rescue. He alone can save. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who restores. He is the one who rebuilds. We can do a lot of these little things as we should. It is helpful. But ultimately, our hope is in Jesus alone. Without him at the foundation, all these little things ultimately don't make that much difference. It is Jesus first, and then as we follow him, we align our lives and our relationships with what he has called us to. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for um, the families in this room and who are here, because I know the fact that they're here means that they, they care. They want to do things your way, but like all families, um, we need help. And like all families, we make mistakes. No one in this room does it perfectly. And God, you've taught me over the years a lot of things by what I've done wrong, and I know I'm not alone in that. You, you teach us the hard way sometimes. But would you help us to be humble? Would you, would you help us to learn? And would you help us to follow what you have laid out for us in your word? And God, would you help us just as husbands and wives, would you help us to just together recommit ourselves to the lordship of your son, Jesus? God, would you, would you just put within us a conviction um, to honor you individually? And Lord, I know when we do that, you can do some incredible things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you want to talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus, about letting him not just be the foundation of your family, but of your heart and of your life, what that means, um, you can come down and talk to someone about that. Or maybe you're ready to make this your church home, church family. Look, all of us have challenges and struggles along the way. You were not meant to go through this stuff alone. If you're going through it alone, don't go through it alone. We, we need each other. And so if you want to talk to someone about becoming a part of this church, again, you can come down front here as we stand together and as we worship our great God.